A massive earthquake shook southern Turkey and northwestern Syria in the early morning hours on Monday. Homes and businesses collapsed to the ground with people inside. By Tuesday afternoon, more than 7,000 people had died, and the death toll is expected to keep going up. Sarah Dadouche covers the Middle East for The Post. I mean, it's horrific everywhere. And the images that we're seeing coming out from all over the place are very, very, very scary. But some of the most hit parts in Syria are, are its most, most poor and most abandoned area. The aftershocks of the 7.8 magnitude earthquake vibrated across borders. Sarah says it woke her up in Beirut. I thought I, thought I was dreaming that I was about to die in an earthquake because it was so uh, intense and long. And this is what people kept repeating in their testimonies. It was very long, and, and that was quite shocking. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Kim Belware. It's Tuesday, February 7th. Today, I talk with Sarah about the devastation the earthquake has left behind in Syria and Turkey and why the disaster is raising fears of a new humanitarian crisis in the region. Sarah, can you describe the damage for us? What does it look like on the ground right now? I mean, in Syria, a lot of the damage that the earthquake caused uh, was compounded by the fact that a lot of these buildings have been bombarded for so long, so their structural integrity was no longer, you know, there. It really looks like, in some parts of Syria, like whole areas have just been pancaked, flattened down. There are whole neighborhoods that, you know, tens and tens of, of buildings that were crowded with people that have just completely collapsed onto themselves, like a house of, you know, cards. In Aleppo, in the government-held part of Syria, the, the buildings are, are, you know, very much husks after the war. Uh, a lot of those fell. There, there, there are other buildings in other parts of the country under government control that have been in desperate need of, of some kind of maintenance. Infrastructure in Syria has been really old. So all of that we're seeing completely collapse. In Turkey, the destruction has been very, very massive, more, more so than in Syria because the epicenter is there. But Turkey also has a, a history of dealing with earthquakes, so a lot of buildings have been fortified before. But the extent of the damage in Turkey is still obviously very, very staggering. Whole buildings have, have collapsed, and, and rescue efforts are just endless. The damage in Turkey actually, you know, alarmingly kind of makes, makes the images that's coming out of it look like, like Syria, really. There's bent um, cars and, and different uh, machinery that's been completely uh, uh, dismantled because of the weight of, of the concrete buildings on top of them. Um, I mean, you see just people huddling in, in, uh, under big coats or blankets just uh, trying to pick through really big mountains of, of rubble and, and human belongings um, to try to get to their loved ones or get their things. You know, buildings are just gutted and they're their insides are kind of spilling out into the streets. Um, these are the kinds of images we're seeing come out of Turkey. And this is sometimes, you know, surrounded by snow and very harsh, hard, cold conditions. What are you hearing about what it was like to go through this? So I've mainly been covering the northwest of Syria um, when it comes to this quake right now. 
Uh, Syria and Turkey themselves, their governments have uh, foreign allies that can help them. The northwest of Syria doesn't have that because it's a lawless land, mostly. And what I'm hearing is is a kind of a, a desperate cry for help because there there isn't enough aid, there isn't enough manpower, there isn't enough heavy heavy machinery, there isn't enough light, there's no electricity or internet which cut off right after the earthquake. The situation is really, really dire. The government-held parts of Syria and Turkey are also obviously suffering really big numbers and really massive destruction. But they have systems in place that are are more or less ready to respond. Syria less so, but Syria also has foreign allies. And, and there was an outpour of humanitarian aid offered to Syria in the aftermath of the quake. The Northwest does not have that that kind of support from outside. So Syria's Northwest has a you know a, a, an opposition um, held uh, enclave. Uh, it's uh, mainly in a province called Idlib, but it spills out into other provinces around it. It's it's run by a, a government called the Salvation Government. It's a pseudo-state that was kind of born out of a, a militant group uh, that used to be you know rife with extremists and considered itself an Al Qaeda affiliate. In the last few years, this group has kind of tried to completely rebrand itself. They they, they don't really do much beyond tr- attempt to provide stopgap measures and and fight and do occasional battles with the Syrian government. Uh, as a result of their presence there, the Syrian government and its Russian allies uh, still bombard the place with uh, air raids. With the, the the most recent one was a few weeks ago. So yeah, the the, the government really this salvation government cannot really offer its residents anything, let alone salvation. What are rescue efforts looking like in Turkey? So t- Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced a state of emergency for three months in in ten regions hit to give rescuers more more time to to dig through the rubble of, of, of these collapsed uh, buildings. Emergency teams have been dispatched everywhere. Fevkalade tedbirler almamızı zorunlu hale getirmektedir. Depremin yaşandığı 10 ilimizi... Syria has done the same, albeit with, with much more scant uh, resources. Um, uh, uh, there's, I mean, there's been uh, technicians and other rescue teams that are being uh, dispatched from other countries in order to train and uh, people on the ground and also relieve them. The rescue effort has kind of been um, very big. There's a lot of people volunteering from different countries, so that's that's the kind of the the silver lining that we have. Sarah, tell me more about the geography of the region that was hit. Um, is this mostly cities? Is this a rural area? A lot of really big cities and towns were were struck. So we're seeing Diyarbakir in in, in Turkey, which is a, a an overwhelmingly Kurdish uh, area, Gaziantep, which was close to the epicenter of the of the quake. And these are all populated areas. The north of Syria is also very populated. There is you know four million people in the northwest alone. The estimates of of the killed are kind of alarming, and there is projections that we may see thousands more deaths. Yeah. And this is not the only hardship that this region has faced in recent years. I know the civil war in Syria began over a decade ago. What else has been going on in the region other than this earthquake? Well, Syria has been going through kind of a a myriad of of crises uh, in the last decade. There's economic ruin all over the country. The the government-held parts are also also going through this because the government cannot afford to do most things uh, as a result of the war and because of widespread corruption and and, uh, warlords that have emerged since. The northwest of Syria and and 
different parts of Syria um, are, are facing compounded effects just because there's a lack of water, there's been a spread of, uh, there's been cholera that's been spreading around Syria uh, that we saw late last year due to contaminated water uh, and people drinking unclean water. Another issue is, is climate-related issues. So we saw a lot of fires that have kind of wreaked havoc on Syria's wheat uh, industry, which is a really big uh, industry. That, I mean, Syria used to be a breadbasket in the region, and now it has to import wheat from outside. And, and this is also a problem that exists across the board for Syria. It now, a country that really did not rely on imports that used to make everything itself, or almost everything itself, is now having to import at a dollar rate that it cannot afford because there is no money in the country. Um, I mean, right now, you know, on top of the earthquake that's happening, there's really intense uh, rainstorms that are, are taking place, which made rescue much more difficult. People couldn't hear, rescuers couldn't hear the voices of people, especially in, in places like Syria, both government-held and, and the Northwest, there isn't that much capacity and technology to take people out because this is a country that's just been ravaged by war. So people were relying on their ears to find and identify human beings who were stuck under the rubble. And the, the rain just made that so much harder. Oh my gosh. Are there any other um, specific ways that, you know, those dynamics are affecting the rescue efforts? So one one rescuer told me um, how she kept trying to get to a 14 or 15-year-old girl who, who she, she brought, she took out her brother and she could just hear in this little girl's voice, you know, how badly she just wanted to get out and live. But they couldn't, they couldn't get to her because they simply didn't have machinery. They were using wooden stints to, to, to prop up concrete and, and buildings. Eventually around midnight, they were able to get some stints from an NGO but before then, there was just, there's, I mean, still till now, there are no tools, simply no tools, no, no medical ability and no tools to deal with this disaster. This is not to mention food, water, shelter that's now been damaged from the earthquake. People were living all over in the, in the northwest province of Idlib. People were living in tents and olive groves on hard earth. And now they have no place to go because the, the, the earthquake ruined what little they have. Sarah, how are the rescue efforts going now? Rescue efforts are, are still underway in, in, in all different uh, areas. Um, Syria has announced, you know, in, in more central areas that were further away from the epicenter that they've finished the rescue and search missions and they've kind of closed those areas down. But there are still massive efforts going underway. Help is flooding to, to Turkey uh, as well as Syria, but Turkey has been damaged uh, more. The issue now is, I mean, the cold weather poses really big threats of hypothermia and frostbite uh, to those who are still lying under the rubble. The longer it takes, uh, the more difficult it is to extract people, especially with, with the harsh cold uh, striking southern Turkey and, and northern Syria. Temperatures in Gaziantep in Turkey and Aleppo, Syria, both of which were you know, hit hard by the earthquake, are, are forecast to dip below freezing overnight um, tonight into tomorrow. After the break, I ask Sarah about how the international community has responded to the crisis and what challenges aid groups are facing in Syria. We'll be right back.
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. Has there been any international aid sent to the area? There's been a lot of international aid that that kind of relatively quickly dispatched. The Qatari Red Crescent actually said three of its field staff were killed. Uh, they already had people on the ground working in northern Syria, in northwestern Syria. Doctors Without Borders said that one of its employees was found dead under the rubble of his home in, in Idlib. Uh, but regardless of that, I mean, people, or if anything, it's it's maybe spurred a lot of people on. There has been calls for uh, donations and volunteers to be sent. The, the issue with Northwest Syria especially is that the border is closed and, and access is not as easy and, and many have to go through different uh, hoops in order to reach the area. And that area is always under constant threat of being cut off from humanitarian aid, which almost 90% of its 4.5 million people need because of a bi-yearly uh, renewal that's necessary by the United Nations uh, to send humanitarian aid, which R- Russia always threatens to veto. But in other parts, we're seeing a lot of um, outpour. I mean, especially government-held Syria has been kind of a pariah in the region and globally. And and we've now seen Lebanon uh, pledge to send a team of technicians, Tunisia, Algeria, Oman, um, I mean, China, Russia, and Iran, its traditional allies. But there's just been, you know, a lot of efforts to help both countries from all around the world. So does this mean that even more Syrians will be displaced? Yes, this will definitely mean that more Syrians will be displaced. More more Syrians have already been displaced in, in the Northwest and in other parts of the country, but especially in the Northwest where many people have been displaced sometimes, I mean, four or five, six times over already. The, the Northwest is, is made up of 4.5 million residents, about 3 million of them are not from Idlib. They're from other parts of the country that have already been displaced at least one time into that area. Many of them live in tents and and, and in damaged buildings and and now have have nowhere to go. Has the EU made any sort of statement or commitment when it comes to sending aid to either country? Over like a dozen EU members have so far responded to Turkey's call for, for help. Um, the the European Commission had said. And the EU also said that it's ready to support those affected in Syria uh, through its humanitarian assistance programs, which which probably means already existing humanitarian assistance uh, programs. But what is in Syria is not enough. It hasn't been enough before. There were stopgap measures to begin with, which means now they will be further strained. So looking ahead, what are the next few weeks going to look like for both of these countries? I think the the biggest issues facing these two countries right now is still extracting people from under the rubble. And I think at some point there's going to have to be a maybe an unofficial cutoff of an kind of an expectation that most people under under the rubble could not be saved. And then the what would come after is is trying to extract bodies and, and rebuild. In the immediate I think we what these countries are mainly going to need is is just medical assistance, food, um, any kind of uh, shelter um, solutions that other countries could offer. Given the level of destruction that we're seeing come out of Turkey and, and Syria, uh, it, it's likely going to take quite a while to, in order to get things um, not even back to normal, but just uh, up and running. 
These areas are also, I think, now worried that there's going to be more shocks to come. The, the many aftershocks that followed made things even worse. So now I think everyone, everyone who's been affected is kind of bracing themselves for not relief, but, but a very hard, difficult time to come. Sarah, thank you so much for your reporting. Thanks a lot. Sarah Dadouche is a Middle East correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Sabby Robinson. If you love the show and want to support the work we do, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Kim Belware. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 